Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 10th, 2011, and my guest is Nicholas Webshot. His latest book is Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics. Nicholas, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. As our listeners know, I'm very interested in Keynes and Hayek, uh, so I very much enjoy reading your book. It's a real tour de force. You've taken a very complicated set of ideas from both men and, and done a superb job making these uh, ideas accessible. Let's begin with their early years, uh, their relationship. Keynes was the older man. He was world famous after he wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which was his condemnation of the Treaty of Versailles after the end of World War I. Kane, uh, Hayek at this point is a young, aspiring Austrian economist, literally from Austria, who's invited to England to challenge Keynes's voice in favor who's, – who's arguing for a larger role for government in fighting the Depression – uh, what happened when Kane, when Hayek came to England, and how did he get there? Who who invited? Talk about Robbins' role in inviting him. Yes, there was a new professor of economics at the London School of Economics called Lionel Robbins, uh, who said he was the youngest professor, and that's true professor in the um, in Britain at that time, and he was about thirty, and he was determined to ensure that the LSE had a good reputation, which it already had, but. It was um, a reputation that he didn't uh, entirely sympathize with. Robbins was unusual for an English economist, and that is that he actually read German, and so therefore he'd read a lot of Austrian economics. And he realized, I think, that the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon understanding of uh, economics was missing an important uh, uh, dimension in Austrian economics. And he also looked north at Cambridge, an hour north of London, to see what Keynes was doing, and Keynes was making leaps and bounds in challenging the orthodoxy of economics, uh, mainly for the practical reason that uh, Britain was enduring in the 1920s vast amounts of unemployment. Uh, It would continue right until, of course, the end of the 30s. And uh, so it was a deliberate intention for Robbins to woo a good Austrian economist to uh, uh, to challenge Keynes because he wanted the LSE to be the counter Keynes, if you like, the, the natural place for people who didn't belong to uh, Keynes's line of thought to coagulate. And that's why uh, Hayek was called for. There might have been other Austrian ec- economists who are probably more distinguished than Hayek. Well, but- Hayek's teacher, uh, Ludwig von Mises, is not his exact teacher, but his mentor certainly is mm. intellectual uh, mentor. Why, do you have any idea why he was not the choice? Well, nobody's ever written any of this down, but I think you can speculate. The fact is that Mies, of course, was a much grander figure. He was, uh, he was, first of all, he was sort of fully employed. He was integrated into the Austrian government and uh, helped in as much as possible uh, manage its very tricky economy. Austria-Hungary, of course, had disappeared uh, in 1918 at the end of uh, World War I, and Austria was left like a head without a torso, it was a very tricky economy to manage. And Mies, uh, an extraordinary uh, person uh, in terms of his resolution about his position, uh, had a lot of things on his plate, including um, looking after people like Hayek, who he, uh, he encouraged and coddled and even helped him in his, uh, in his love life uh, when Hayek was uh, courting. He invited the young couple around their home in order to um, make sure that they're solidly fixed. But Mies was a very grumpy sort of character. He was always falling out with people. Uh, Even his wife, who wrote a a very generous um, memoir about Mies, said that actually he was had black moods and uh, sometimes was just insufferable and for no reason had an angry temper. And I think that maybe that was against him. Also, he didn't really speak English very well. Now, we know from Friedrich Hayek, uh, from movies of Friedrich Hayek, that even late in life, his accent was very, very strong. And uh, you have to listen very acutely in order to understand exactly what uh, Hayek is saying. 
But Hayek had at least spent a year in America, and so he had at least, according to uh, Lionel Robbins, uh, enough English to be able to uh, make his way in London. Um, it is a moot point, though, what would have happened had Hayek been a true English speaker, because what he was up against in Keynes was probably one of the most eloquent, articulate, intelligent opponents that, uh, that any intellectual could ever, um, I suppose, wish for, because there's nothing better than having a very sharp person on the other side, other side of the tennis court, as it were. But, uh, and he was all those things, plus he was, uh, partly because of those things, he was incredibly charismatic. He attracted uh, people around him who wanted to be around him, who enjoyed hearing him. He was a tremendous conversationalist, right? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt that, um, and it, it actually rather complicates this story, uh, there's no doubt that Keynes is an amazingly seductive figure. If he'd, done, if he'd only lived one life, it would have been extraordinary, because he was uh, a, a most um, imaginative thinker. And so all of his economic work was way outside the box, which is exactly the sort of thing that people like you and my, me and you, know, you and I enjoy to, uh, to play with, as it were. Yeah. But he did other things, too. He was a, a civil servant. Uh, that is, that he worked for the state, very often for no salary. After 1918, he didn't work for a salary. He, he was a close advisor to a lot of political figures, including the people at the very top, the prime minister, leading the opposition, and so on. But he also uh, spent every morning in bed, uh, I must say, in a, uh, an enviable position. He used to sit up in bed until noon uh, with a telephone by his side as he worked out what to buy and sell. He was an amazing speculator. It is ironic, I think, that of the two uh, people, Keynes is the person who's always uh, described as the person who uh, tinkered with the market and interfered with the market, which is true, and Hayek was the person who would prefer for the market to uh, let things uh, rip, let things happen, uh, let things naturally evolve. Uh, but of the two of them, Keynes played the market. He understood the market, particularly in currencies, so well that he built up two fortunes, one after the other, he lost one in 1929, and within two years, he'd, he'd made it back and more. And he used this skill, uh, too, to help his friends in the Bloomsbury Group, people like Virginia Woolf, uh, E.M. Forster, uh, his lover, Duncan Grant. He was homosexual. He was homosexual for half his life. And then he was heterosexual for the other half of his life, Keynes. I mean, Keynes had everything simultaneously, it seems. Covered a lot of ground. They covered him on the ground. Right, <laughs> about statistics. It. He had wide-ranging intellectual interests. Um, they, so, uh, so Hayek is a strange choice in the sense that he doesn't speak English very well. He's he, better than Mises, maybe, but not very well. He gets to um, to England, and he gives a, a, a famous set of lectures. And as you point out, he gives. A, a different, another lecture in advance of that that doesn't get as much publicity. Talk about the two sets um, and yeah. the reaction he got. Well, um, he was hired rather like a gunslinger, like a Western gunslinger, to come and take out Keynes. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that what the LSE wanted uh, Hayek to achieve was to provide an intellectual framework from which people who opposed Keynes could have a very good grounding in the ability to look at the weak points of Keynes. So when Hayek arrived, instead of going straight to the LSE, which is what you might imagine, which is where he'd been invited, he instead went straight to Cambridge, where he gave a lecture to, right in the heart of uh, John Maynard Keynes's world, uh, to the Marshall Society. Now, Marshall was the... Uh, in, in Anglo-Saxon terms, anyway, he was the person who knew everything about classical economics. As uh, all the Keynesians always used to say before they became Keynesians, you'll find it all in Marshall. And the annual Marshall lecture was a big deal. And Hayek was asked to give this, and he gave it, and he completely baffled everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking uh, concepts that they'd never even heard of. And that, in the combination of his thick accent, the fact that he had a bad cold at the time, the fact he'd only just arrived in Britain, slightly confused maybe, what with one thing and another, this large body of uh, Keynesians many of whom called themselves the Cambridge Circus, who surrounded Keynes and who were, who were his acolytes. I mean, true disciples. We're talking here devotion way beyond what uh, any normal um, teacher could expect from his or her students. Uh, in the midst of this lion's den of Keynesians, 
uh, Hayek laboriously, meticulously, as was his Austrian way, laid out on the blackboard exactly why, if you were to provide either cheap credit or if you were the government were to directly intervene in an economy, why um, things would go wrong before long, and all of the industries that you would encourage by cheap credit would go bust. And uh, as he pointed out, the, the wonderful word that everybody who ever heard Hayek in these days called fluctuations, is, which is what Hayek called it, the fluctuations, the business cycle, was actually something that you really could not, however much you might want to iron out the top and the bottom of the business cycle, the fact was the business cycle was as if a natural phenomenon, and it was very difficult to deal with. And this well, is... The, the Cambridge people weren't much impressed with this, and they... they well, they meant with mostly with silence. They didn't even jeer him particularly. They were just absolutely agog because they couldn't understand a word he said. And this is 1930, is that right? 1930, yeah. So one thing that uh, was interesting to me, and I, I've been learning about this as you know, Keynes has become back, uh, back in the news uh, because of the current recession. Um, Keynes' ideas, the, his great book, the, the, the General Theory, comes out in 1936, but he's thinking – Along interventionist lines, long before that, and in the late 1920s, a book comes out in America advocating spending and the, the evils of saving. And Hayek writes a review of it. It's not published in English for quite a while, I think, for a while. But he writes a review of it that's really an anti-Keynesian argument. The American economist and businessman who written this book, which name escapes me right now, we'll put a link up to it. Um, they had made a what well, essentially was a Keynesian argument that savings is, can be bad and, and spending is good. Hayek had had answered it, and that I think is part of the reason he's invited. So he continues this dialogue, which now becomes with Keynes, eventually soon becomes with Keynes himself, uh, because he he's asked by Robbins to review Keynes, uh, Keynes's latest book, which is the Treatise on Money. So talk about that review, which is really quite something. Uh, it is, and um, I think it's worth bearing in mind. That when we think today about the profound division in terms of economic argument in the political world between the left and the right, between uh, those who believe there should be another stimulus to the American economy and those people who believe you should pay off debt as fast as possible and become uh, put the economy back to its natural state, as it were, uh, we might think they're vituperative. And if you really want to know where it starts, it may well have started just right from the very first shot that Hayek took at Keynes. They had briefly met. They'd already started to argue, which was rather interesting, even on their first meeting. Now, this is not unusual. I mean, these are, these are academics, and they're very open public academics, and they're, you might expect them to want to argue. But the fact that the very first thing they did was argue was, was extraordinary. Uh, but here he sat in, uh, in the, the LSE's learned journal, Economica. He wrote, uh, a total condemnation of Keynes without quite getting to grips with what Keynes was talking about. That is, he said that it was, first of all, he wrote it in two halves, which I probably was a tactical error. The first half, he, he really listed a whole collection of things saying, I don't know what Mr. Keynes is talking about. I don't know whether Mr. Keynes means this or that when he talks about investment or savings or whatever. And so he really didn't get very much past the first base, but the absolute blank hostility, the absolute strict counter to Keynes was already laid down. It's true that he built on work that he'd already done. It was a natural thing for him to do. Uh, but it doesn't read like – and I think it's important to, to appreciate the tenor of this conversation and the back and forth from both sides. Uh, it reads more like a nasty set of blog posts than yeah. the way we traditionally think of – Academic life, either today or then, um, as you say, right. it's, it's very, it's dismissive, it's critical. It's okay to be critical in a review; most people are of books they don't like, but it has a, a almost personal tone and certainly a, a openly critical tone. I, and it was only the first half. Absolutely, and it was scathing, and it was sarcastic. And this comes, by the way, well, this is a different age. We're talking eighty years ago now. John Maynard Keynes was uh, very well brought up. He was an old Etonian, and he went to Cambridge. Now, in English terms, there's not much more grand than that, really, unless you also have a country estate, which they didn't have. But, I mean, he, he was very well-mannered, very haute bourgeois. You know, he was way up there in terms of good manners and so on. But at the same time, 
Keynes had such a viperish wit, uh, a tongue to him, that he was, uh, and he found it very difficult to, uh, not to use it. I mean, uh, uh, Lord Clark, uh, Kenneth Clark, once said of him, Keynes was never capable of dipping his headlights. There was a dazzle about Keynes, and he could just could not resist. If he saw an easy uh, prey, an easy target, he took a pot shot at it. And Hayek, from a similar perspective, he too was bourgeois. He came from a family of professionals and academics and school teachers. Uh, and the Austrian way, in any way, is to be meticulously polite about everything. So it was extraordinary, in a way, that these two men who... Enormous normal circumstances if they'd met socially and didn't know what each other did for a living would have been entirely charming. But from the get-go, the debate between Hayek and Keynes was poisonous. And he, so he wrote the first half, and no sooner had he written the first half than Keynes read it and wrote a riposte, so that uh, the riposte was published very shortly after the, the first half of Hayek's critique was published. And Keynes was... This, this is an unbelievable thing, actually, right? Because he, he ends up. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I find it so amusing. Keynes was sort of flabbergasted. I think that he'd never. He was not used to being treated in this way for a start. He was used to be treated with some reverence, and he could not believe that this guy who just arrived off the boat from Austria, and the first thing he did was to send a bazooka in his way. Uh, it, 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 I, well, it, it's worth reading at great length. I mean, the economic arguments are so dust dry. But, um, Convoluted. I have to confess. Does I, anybody understand them? I well, mean, I don't think even anyone at the time understood them. In, in a way, I think it's obvious that Keynes and Hayek don't quite get they the didn't. grips with them. No, I found one thing I have to confess is that I, I'm not a big fan of mathematical economics, and I've talked no. on the program many times about my um, uh, preference often now for uh, what, we, what I often call – my colleague Dan Klein, Smith Hayek economics, which is more narrative, more conversational, mm. uh, more uh, observing the world and less tr- pretending that it can be made rigorous through math. But having said that, I, I found they're, uh, they're confused back and forth. I almost longed for some mathematical rigor because uh, it's as if they, one was talking in English and one was talking in German, and they were yeah. totally um, – they didn't make a lot of headway. That, that, that's the, the lesson, I, the, the thing I came out of their debate with. Uh, they, they, at that point, they didn't make many advances on where their points of disagreement really were. So Keynes answers, and his answer is an attack, not a, so much a defense, but it's an attack on Hayek, right? It, yeah, he, instead of saying, taking into account what Hayek had observed about his own theory, he attacked Hayek's theory, which he called the greatest muddle that you could ever come across. He, you know, he said, this is, this is bedlam. This is, uh, this is uh, argument uh, ad absurdum, which means that you get nowhere. This, you know, it's barely worth talking about. But he's he, attacking he Hayek's, He was attacking uh, Hayek's recent book, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it's sort of like, okay, you review my book, I'll review your I'll book. I'll review your book. <laughs> it's, yeah, it started off petty and then went downwards. <laughs> okay, so then the second half comes out. So the second half then comes out, and it's a bit late by then because Keynes – it's very difficult to catch Keynes' attention for very long because he's very busy. But the second half of Hayek's assessment came out. And actually, in the second half, he does get more to grips with the problems about what happens when a government intervenes in an economy and starts disrupting the natural order of things, as it were, blowing things out of proportion, uh, putting levers in the wrong place, readjust, making readjustments which were untenable. You know? and, but by, by then, it was probably too late. By then, he'd lost all of Keynes' sympathy. Keynes was under the illusion that, and actually wrote this, that he thought that he had not been given the fair um, mind, the open mind, that any person who had written a book might expect from an academic reviewer. He thought that Hayek had already made up his mind that he wanted to get Keynes, that uh, many of the things that he was criticizing of Keynes' thoughts he didn't properly address. It was an ad hominem attack on him, an attack on him as a person rather than as a thinker. And uh, so the the second uh, and much more substantial part of the review arrived to a a bit of a thud, really. I mean, Keynes, by this time, um, although he was sort of intrigued by Hayek and did mention to someone... Uh, in a letter, he said, you know, this is a great farrago of nonsense, but I can't help thinking there's something in it, and uh, which 
showed an extraordinary honesty on Keynes's part because he he was interested in getting to the bottom of things, to getting to the truth of things. But what he was, I think, uh, irritated by Hayek was just this sort of blanket condemnation, this uh, to arrive out of nowhere and just say, no, it's uh, if you start doing any of the things you suggest, things will only get worse. But I'll remind uh, I'll remind the listeners we're talking about. Not Keynes' famous book, but rather the treatise on money. And Keynes did concede, I assume to his colleagues and friends, if not publicly, that the book was not was flawed. And it and part of the what I understood from your book, part of the reason that he does not uh, counter back to Hayek is he said, okay, I'm going to write a better book. I'm already and he was already yeah, well well true. into it. It's true. Keynes was actually his most um, ex- prodigious at this time in terms of new thought. He was moving very fast. And as you know, with publications of books particularly, I mean, there's a gap between when you finish writing and when, you, when it arrives in bound copies. And uh, already by the time that the book that Hayek was criticizing had arrived, uh, Keynes had moved on and actually says this very clearly in the preface, which is another reason that he didn't give Hayek any credit for having condemned him so much. He said he hasn't taken into account the fact that my mind is constantly changing. On this subject, I haven't come to any deliberation yet. This is just um, thinking aloud, if you like. And this was all clearly explained in the preface of the book, and Hayek um, took not much notice of that. And Hayek, uh, again, Keynes thought that Hayek had treated him very poorly. So Uh, They then had a little to and fro, uh, and and very interesting. I mean, these these are people writing day by day. (laughs) I mean, this is like email, except that it's hard copy post office, you know. I mean, twice a day, twice a day, the the poor postman was going up and down, you know, the the King's College Drive delivering letters from Hayek and vice versa, like Keynes to Hayek. They were mostly, though, um, it's almost like shadow boxing again. They were just tweaking each other. If you've ever seen... Um, I don't know, a cat playing with a mouse or something, or a, a cat playing with a dog even, you know, a puppy and a, a kitten together. It was a bit like that. They would go over and sort of thwack each other and run away. And, uh, well, that set the tone for the next 80 years of debate, really, between the two sides. And uh, I must say, although uh, all the people I know on both sides are amazingly charming, uh, when they come to discuss each other's work, it still remains the lever of sort of uh, vituperative <laughs> um, hysteria, if you like, yeah. uh, which, uh, well, it's usually amusing, I, I suppose, and it certainly raises the stakes. But I'm not sure that it means that you get any closer to uh, discussing clearly exactly what the merits are on either side. Yeah, we're going to come to that because I, I find that – I think that's absolutely right. But let's talk about um, the general theory. So Keynes – in collaboration, one of the things interesting about your book, you talk about the collaborative process that Keynes is involved in with his with his colleagues, mm. and how they helped him work out some of the uh, nuances of the general theory. He he, he land, after doing all kinds of writing for the general public and uh, and and helping with politicians, Keynes writes a book uh, that he claims, at least, is for economists, for his colleagues. He tries a different approach. He writes the general theory. And it is a um, it's a it's a bombshell. It, it lands with great uh, force and impact. Uh, and so I want you to talk about two things. One, how the profession reacted to it, which to me one of the most interesting parts of the book, and uh, the famous silence of Hayek in the face of it. So talk about those two things. Okay. So the general theory uh, published finally in 1936, but it took most of the early 30s to write it, and. Keynes was determined, uh, having, as you say, tried to cajole the public in general, talking directly to them, saying, you know, we need to increase demand if we want to cure unemployment, go out and buy something, and then trying to convince governments that they should uh, be uh, changing policy in order to spend more taxpayers' money or borrow in order to spend taxpayers' money on public works and so on. This came to not very much, and so he thought, I'm going to take the long route. What I'm going to do is to persuade academics, and the academics in turn are going to change the world. And, uh, well, he did it. It's a very confused book, it should say, I should say. Um, almost unreadable. Uh, almost unreadable, To a modern yeah, economist, but, let alone yeah. a modern reader. It's uh, who's a normal but, person. But that turned out to be part of its charm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Be- because, uh, and, and all sorts of... Um, Keynesians will say this. In fact, famously they did. People like Samuelson would say it. The, the great Keynesian uh, uh, textbook writer, 
said that because it was so complicated, because it was so um, difficult to get to grips with, that was the secret of its success. Um, it's an amazing thought, but it's, it yeah, seems it's, to be true. I, well, I, I, have a, I have a sociological story, um, and I'll, I'll let you react to it. The, and, I, and part of this comes from the way you describe the reaction. The, the world is – remember, it's 1936. We're about to enter – uh, what we now call a double dip in 1938 in America, at least there's a second recession that's very, very bad after the Great Depression starts. There starts to be some recovery starting in 1933. It's steady, and then in 38, uh, again, the economy does very, very badly. So the, it, we're in that period where, in the 30s, where around the world things have been bad for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of shaken faith. Whether it's legitimate or not, there's a lot of – as there is now, a lot of shaken faith in the virtues of capitalism and, and free markets. And this book comes along and says it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, government can make it better by spending more money. And there's um, – necessity is the mother of invention, I feel like. The, 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 the clamor and thirst that was for this and the, the thirst that was slaked by its appearance uh, was due – not so much to it being true or improving or empirically right, but it was the right medicine. Uh, it appealed to a lot of people. Is that fair? I, I think that's absolutely fair. In, in a way, it wouldn't have mattered too much exactly what it said, because the important thing was that someone was coming up with a coherent or apparently coherent explanation for why things need not be as bad as they were and giving a pretty clear plan to... Uh, governments about exactly what they might do in order to cure unemployment. And this completely fitted with the public mood that just wanted something to be done. And it also fitted with somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, who's not, not a great economist. <laughs> no. I don't have to uh, pretend. Uh, and uh, even when Keynes went to see him, he didn't understand what he was being told. On the He's other a very hand, good Roosevelt, politician, not the best economist. Yeah. Brilliant politician, <laughs> exactly. Brilliant politician. Who just knew that, and that's why he tried a sort of scattergun approach. He said, you know, I've been elected because people want me to fix this, and I'm going to try everything. If some things work, fine. If they don't work, it doesn't matter. Because the whole thing is that people want to see that I am trying to solve their problem for them. And I think for, for maybe 40 years, uh, Roosevelt's reputation was sustained by that that trying was enough. Um, at first, it was believed, I was taught, it was in the air that he had, through the New Deal, cured the Great Depression. Uh, then the received wisdom became, well, he didn't he didn't really do enough. It wasn't real Keynesianism. Uh, it looked like it, but it wasn't really Keynesianism. And that's why the economy didn't recover sufficiently. But at least he tried, and that optimism that that created was was sufficient to help recover, help the recovery. I don't think either of those is correct. Obviously, monetary policy had, a, I think, a bigger role than either of those. But it's it's good folk folk tales, you know. It makes a good yeah. Folk tale. So where do you stand then on the double dip, the so-called Roosevelt recession? Yeah, it's hard to know. Uh, some people blamed it on um, tightening of money. Some people blamed it on you know if you're if you're a monetarist, you blame it on money tightening. If you're a fiscal Keynesian, you say, well, he raised taxes and and tried to foolishly tried to balance the budget, and that's what what provoked it. Uh, I think it's very hard to know. I don't think we'll ever know. But I think that those, those are the two stories you hear. Yeah, he certainly rode back from his original rather bold efforts of trying to create jobs, and he canceled that. And also it was when, when it seemed that the figures were moving in the right direction, I think he seemed to ease his foot off the gas. Well, he's a politician. He's risk-averse. Yeah. I think he was hopeful that he could you know, get by uh, without having to keep doing things that he was worried might might end up blowing up in his face. Mm. So he retrenched, but who knows? Mm. It's hard. Just while we're talking about the general theory, because it is interesting, the collaborations, as you say, this really wasn't all Keynes. Uh, Keynes was the driving force, undoubtedly, and he also had a sort of, one of those umbrella minds that could sort of embrace a whole collection of things all in, under a, a single unit and uh, combine them together so they, they appear to have a coherent whole. But the... I suppose the, the principal amanuensis was uh, Richard Kahn. Somebody I'd never heard of until your book. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd never heard of him. Oh, he's, really? He's Fabulous lost to, to graduate, modern graduate economics, I'm afraid. Uh-huh. Uh, Richard Kahn was the guy who actually took an idea which had been floated by Keynes 
uh, in the 20s, uh, really, it, it, as, a, as a, a sound, practical, political suggestion to the Liberal Party about how to get, the, get people back to work, Keynes came to the conclusion uh, that every pound that was spent by a government to create jobs was not worth just a pound because, um, as he explained it a number of times, you know, the, if you paid the butcher, the butcher would then pay the candlestick maker and the candlestick maker would then buy something from uh, the corner shop and the corner shop would buy something from the dry cleaner and so on. So he worked out, uh, again, this is um, something that you and I would probably recoil from. He actually tried to work out specifically what that figure would be. Yeah. And he came to a conclusion that we 1.4 in Britain anyway, that every pound would be worth more than that. Yeah, that's the multiplier effect. That's the uh, multiplier effect. Now, Richard Kahn took this and said, oh, this is very interesting, but he hasn't proven it. And so Kahn went away. Kahn, a, a, a pretty good genius, I must say, in his own right. And um, he went away, and he worked out how that would be the case. And it's a very interesting and very elegant proof. It might not be true, by by the way. <laughs> looking know, back, looking back on fifty well, years, it often forgets. They often forget the uh, that the dollar often came from someone who isn't going to spend it. And that's the famous critique of Bastiat. It's the famous critique of Henry Hazlitt, the uh, the writer who who was an early critic of Keynes and and was eager to dispel the idea that there was this free lunch because of the multiplier. But Kahn worked a lot on this, obviously, and and it and it, one of the things that comes out of the book is that there were a lot of conversations. Constantly going on between Keynes, John Robinson, Richard Kahn, and others in this circle of folks that influenced Keynes and helped him work these ideas out. And that just that's part of the collaborative process. Just sort of interesting in its in its own right. Uh, yeah. Also, Keynes. It should be said because it's uh, what we're trying to do here is try to work, work out why the general theory got such acceptance so quickly. There's no doubt that Keynes was an astonishingly good salesman. He was terrific at marketing. He discovered, I think, when writing the economic consequences of the piece. Uh, first of all, the more lively you make the writing, the more uh, likely people will take notice of it. But he was also very good at the pre-publicity. He was very good at the op-ed article in, in support of the argument and so on. And uh, there's no doubt that he made sure that, the, that everybody knew that he was coming out with a magnum opus. And he also gave in, up to the year, uh, the year, uh, the final year of writing the book, he gave a succession of weekly lectures at Cambridge, which were filled to overflowing with people who were conscious that they were listening to something uh, that was historic, which yeah. undoubtedly it was. Which I mean, was. I can't think of anything more thrilling, actually, to, have, to for you and I to sit now in that uh, lecture room in Cambridge and actually listen to what was being said and how it was pre presented. I, I mean... <laughs> It's, if you can have regrets about this stuff, you know, the fact is that today, of course, everything would be uh, web-streamed. Yes, it would. <laughs> and so we'd be able to see all of this stuff. We'd see Hayek and uh, Keynes floundering around with each other's uh, arguments and knocking them on the head. It'd be it, very thrilling. And it clearly and, – and you recount many examples of the exhilaration that academics felt when they encountered these ideas for the first time of Keynes or read the book for the first time. What I find remarkable is – I alluded to this earlier. It really isn't like Einstein lecturing or uh, to take another example, example, Andrew Wiles lecturing on Fermat's Last Theorem where you, you realize you're at a historic moment. It was a historic moment, but the, the evidence for the claims, of course, is very different. Economics isn't as scientific as physics or math, and um, the enthusiasm – for people of the older generation, and there was a generation gap here, as you as you uh, chronicle, the older generation sat there puzzled. I think saying, "Well, this isn't. I'm not sure this is right. It, it's certainly wrong by our usual past standards of what's right. It goes in the face of everything I've learned." But the young people ate it up like uh, popcorn. They couldn't. They could not resist it, and uh, it carried the day. Absolutely. When the books arrived in boxes in Harvard, they were pounced upon. Well, I mean, you have to move on to something like, I don't know, the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper or something. I mean, you have to think of a... Harry or, Potter. Or a, a, Harry Potter, maybe. <laughs> Harry Potter. Well, or maybe an iPad, you yeah. know? I mean, exactly. they People just... People lining up for it. They could not... I mean, and, and there, there was, and there's no doubt, there was a sort of Steve Jobs element about Keynes that they just adored him. Yeah. They just thought he was... And the interesting thing, too, was that many of the opponents of Keynes, uh, including people like Nicky Caldor, who actually... 
uh, helped Hayek amazingly with his original review and critique of Keynes and helped him with uh, a number of other important translations. But he started off as a Hayekian, and then he switched over. And everybody, in the end, switched over, including Lionel Robbins, even. I mean, with amazing reservations. Lionel Robbins was a very sentient fellow. But at the same time, he said, I am sorry that in the 1930s, I I resisted a policy which might have made life easier for people. Yeah, and I think think that's a huge part of this, um, is uh, you've got somebody suffering – there come, somebody comes with a new cure, a new medicine. It could be shock treatment. It could be radiation. It could be leeches. Yeah. But this person's been suffering for so long, and you say, yeah. "Well, I don't think that's going to work." That person is drowned out by the uh, the uh, applause for the new technique to some extent. I think there's more. I don't want to be unfair to Keynes. Um, obviously, there was a great deal of of creativity in his work, but clearly, part of the appeal was the fact that he had a new cure for something that people desperately wanted uh, fixed. Yeah. So, so here's this puzzle at this point. We've talked about this on this program before with Larry White and maybe with Pete Betke. I can't remember, but certainly with Larry White. The, the general theory comes out and Keynes's natural opponent, F.A. Hayek, um, is silent. Nothing is heard from him about this book, which is a book that is a devastating intellectual challenge to his whole worldview. He has already responded to previous efforts by Keynes. And yet he does not review the book and does not write on it. And one thing I learned from your book that I did not know is that Robbins, rather than asking Hayek to review the book for Economica, asks uh, A.C. Pagu. So talk about that and then Hayek's silence. Yeah, as you can imagine, Keynes was such a manipulator of uh, public sentiment that he knew that there was nothing like controversy for, for attracting uh, people to your cause, or indeed for encouraging people to buy your book, which is pretty simple, sure. and therefore cut, get to grips with your argument. And therefore he sent Hayek proof copies of the general theory, saying, you may be interested in this, Ex- fully expecting Hayek to come back over the top as he had uh, six years before uh, with a, you know, a, a wonderful, devastating critique. And certainly and, the first half of, his, of Hayek's review of the Treatise of Money on Money could have been re, just reissued yeah. <laughs> almost in critiquing Keynes by saying, I don't know what investment, although you, you point out Keynes made, went to great pains to, to try did, to clarify did, some yeah. of those issues. He did. I think that Keynes for once was actually trying not to, um, this wasn't smoke and mirrors. Uh, where in the past, it, it may have been, he may have been happy for it to be smoke and mirrors, his ideas. But this time, I think he really wanted people to, uh, to get to grips with what, what was under, uh, a, really a genuine revolution in the way that we understood economics. The, I mean, I know that we can look at all the various bits of the general theory and point out that each of one of them is, is flawed and it doesn't provide a coherent whole. But the, outcome of the general theory was a total change in the way that we understand economics and the relationship between governments and the economy. Yep, absolutely. You know, there was no such thing as macroeconomics. Yeah, I want to come to that. Let's talk about that now. Let's just stick... Yeah, okay. We're we're sticking with why Hayek didn't do anything. Yeah, we'll come back to that macro part. Which is jolly difficult. And if we had Hayek here with us now, I mean, it's something which I suspect that even if we had an hour with him, we still wouldn't quite get to the bottom of it. He gave a number of explanations over the course of his long life why he really did not go for Keynes when it came to the general theory, which after all was the big idea, the big notion, and the big challenge, as you say, to his own thought. And he's made a number of well, barely credible things. He said, you know, well, I was worried that just like the previous book, he would say, I've changed my mind, and so, you know, I, I didn't even yeah. bother. I, well, you know, it doesn't really hold water. Yeah, it doesn't help. Um, I think that what does seem to be clear is that one of the things that was thrown up by the original debate between Hayek and Keynes was that they both came to the conclusion that there were elements of capital theory that needed to be addressed properly. And Hayek himself set out on and in what he thought was going to be a, a substantial new work on capital theory. And he just got so bogged down in, in it that by the time that, in 1936, he was, uh, he was, he was, well, I guess he was rather like I am now. He was blocked for knowing exactly what to say. He had just, I think it, it was a much larger mountain to climb than he'd ever imagined. He found it's uh, less interesting than you're expecting, and he just got bogged down in it, and 
when the book finally came out, nobody took any notice of it. And I think that it was in contrast to what uh, Hayek looked across at Keynes and saw this sort of, this, uh, this facility for explaining himself, this clarity, this public acclamation, this uh, uh, Keynes being raised to people's shoulders and carried, you know, uh, high in, in public esteem. And I think that all of that didn't help Hayek. Hayek was sort of frozen in inaction, if you like. That's the, I think that's the nearest I can get to why he didn't actually do anything about it. Well, he fine. snipped around the edges. And the whole of his life, he kept going back to the general theory, picking off this bit or that bit. But what, what would be ideal and what would be amazingly helpful today, looking at the problems that we have, is to have Hayek's proper definitive checklist of why the general theory was wrong. And I'm afraid we haven't got it. Yeah, I, it's funny as you were t- saying that I had the exact same image uh, of of your opponent being carried off off on the shoulders <laughs> of the crowd with the cheers and the, the delight, and you're you're standing in the corner and you want to say, but wait, 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 but exactly. Nobody really want nobody wants to listen to you. That's number one. It's very demoralizing. You figure, well, I'm going to write this. I'll, I'll write my own great book and it'll answer it, and, and I don't have to answer it right now. Time is long, mm. and the, mm. of course it is. Turns out. The debate does get more complicated as as the next fifty years go on. But yeah. he figures out, I'm on the process of finishing my great book, and that'll be my answer. And as you point out, that book is a muddle. Um, Hayek wasn't particularly proud of it. It didn't come out the way he thought. And I, I, my claim—I don't know if we don't, as you say, we'll never know—but my claim is that Hayek, in, in that book, was trying to was to was trying to create. What has always been the gold standard, which is a microeconomics-based theory of macroeconomics, uh, an individual decision-based theory of, of how the overall economy behaves. We're still in that struggle right now in economics, and um, he couldn't do it. And it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's perhaps too hard, and he comes to that view, I think, in the 1974 article – his Nobel Prize lecture and the pretense yeah. of knowledge, yeah. he basically says – it's really – to me, that's his answer to Keynes. It's not a literal answer, but he says yeah. uh, the economy is too hard. Uh, yeah. We don't have the knowledge uh, to understand the, under, the underlying processes, and uh, we should concede as much. And that's his real last word on macroeconomics. Yeah, I think that – I mean if you were only to read one piece by Hayek, I think that Nobel lecture actually is probably is the most interesting – the most honest, most candid, uh, and the most thought-provoking of them it's all. A, it's a glorious piece. Uh, yeah. And when he describes, uh, you know, I mean, they were both capable of um, thinking up similes or metaphors which would allow them to describe a very complex conceptual notion so that regular people could understand it. When Hayek describes in his Nobel lecture that in order to understand economics, um, it would be like knowing... Uh, this, or this, this is what my opponents do. They look at a football team and they find out all the vital statistics of all the players involved. They find out what the weather's going to be. They find out everything else that they could possibly know, the, you know, the, the temperature of the grass, you know, the, everything they know, but they still can't predict what the result of the game is going to be because actually economics activity is about individual choices and the only thing you can be certain of is... Uh, the prices are trying to tell you something because at least two people agreed on it. Yeah, and and he says in that essay in that lecture that you know if you had all the knowledge, if you knew what the people yeah. had eaten for breakfast and what their metabolism was doing that day, and whether they had a fight with their wife or yeah. all yeah. that, their muscle tone, maybe you could really predict what the outcome would be. But we'll never have that level of knowledge, and it's true yeah. about the economy as well. Mm. Um, Which so, is a sort of contra. Scientific thing altogether, isn't it? It is. Well, it's a it's a statement about the limits of reason, which is a theme mm. that Hayek mm. gets involved in in his philosophy over that time period. Right? He goes through his fascinating time in the wilderness that you write about, which is roughly thirty six to seventy six. It's a forty, slight, pretty mm. long time, and kind of like mm. the kind of like the Jews in the desert. Uh, <laughs> time, <laughs> in the desert, it's about four decades, forty and, years. Yeah, yeah, it's about 40. forty years of wandering, and in that time, he goes into he explores all kinds of other stuff, right? He he gets into yeah. neuroscience and philosophy, yeah. and he writes books of, of political economy writ large. And what he's in, one of the themes of all in all that work is the limits of human of human knowledge and mm. the importance of of recognizing fundamental uh, unknowability and fundamental uncertainty that can't be resolved by by science. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is the great thing that his failure to address the general theory and then the failure of his big economic theory book himself, that's what leads him to actually what turns out to be the thing that he's really best known for today, yep. which is a totally different, I mean, a non-economic study of uh, people in society. And uh, uh, how, uh, the economy is involved, but this is not economics. Right. And this is what uh, he wrote uh, during World War II. He was an Austrian he volunteered. Uh, he was by no means a Nazi sympathizer or anything like it. Uh, I must Very say that I crawled all over it. There's no anti-Semitism, although one might expect it out of such a family in Austria. They, Ironically, it, Keynes has some anti-Semitism in his, in yeah, his past, yeah, in his youth, and yeah. his adulthood. Yeah. But uh, so, he, he, I mean, he, he's very honest about it. I mean, the great thing about Hayek, there's absolutely no side to him. He never tries to, as Keynes does all the time, uh, Hayek never tries to um, uh, portray himself in a better light. And he's constantly confessing to things which you think, well, I don't think I would have mentioned yeah, that. Right, and so when it comes to the middle of the war, he said, I was in an absolutely ideal position, you see, because I was an Austrian, so I was uh, not allowed to fight, but at the same time, I had all this time, and everybody else was busy, so I mean, you know, I had the place to myself. I mean, it, and, there's no, you know, he went to Cambridge and lived up in Cambridge and so on. Uh, he had a, he had a, if you can put it that way, he had a good war, and the result yeah. of it actually turns out to be the thing that he's remembered for most of all, uh, the which is the road to serfdom. Yeah. Which, which is a uh, shame because it's, I don't think it's as close to his best book and it's the no. one book people read and it's, it's, it's an interesting book. It was important. It obviously had a big, made a big splash. Talk about that book and how it indirectly became a counterpoint to Keynes. Yes. The, you, you've got to look at um, Keynes and Hayek, I think, through the two different lenses of what they were trying to achieve. Keynes always wanted to ameliorate the lives of others, and he was particularly offended by unemployment that he thought was unnecessary. So joblessness was what Keynes was worried about most of all. Hayek was worried about something else. He was worried about uh, and experienced it, and he and his family experienced it in Austria directly after World War I, and that was rampant inflation and what that does in terms of undermining the economy to the general society. He saw Austria cut adrift, l losing all of its uh, regular social uh, coherence and becoming a prey to extremist thought, uh, revolutionaries, uh, mobs. And looking at the world after World War II, which was what he then did uh, during the years of World War II, he was trying to work out uh, what it was about both Nazism and Soviet communism that they had in common. There was a misconception that he came across among many British academics that somehow communism and Nazism were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. And he put them straight on that and said, no, they are identical. And what they're identical in, and the reason they are so tyrannical, is that they remove people's ability to operate freely within the free market. And on that relatively straightforward thought, he built uh, uh, a case against really any attempt for governments to interfere in economies in as much as it curtails the individual's right to take part in the market. And he said that was the road to serfdom, a road to tyranny, if you like. And uh, just to clarify one thing, he never mm. said it was inevitable. He get, no, he he gets, it's a cheap shot against him that, that somehow because we're not uh, all in, enslaved, uh, the book was wrong. It's a strange idea. It's not what his theme was. No, no. Exactly, no, he, no he, was, uh, he was very subtle, actually, what he was saying. He said that incrementally, roughly, the, the more a government uh, takes out of the hands of taxpayers their own money and spends it through planners – as the planners can't possibly know what genuinely the needs are of the taxpayers who gave up the money in the first place, that there is a disconnect, and that very often that can tend towards tyranny. But this is all tending. This is all tending. There's no absolute position in that. And then, of course, there are many things in Road to Serfdom which many people who say they're Hayekians or even have read the Road to Serfdom don't seem to have grasped. Yeah, and that he said sure. that there are basic things that, uh, in order for... If we, if we rely upon the market to... Uh, to keep society honest, if you like, then there are various things that you have to take out of the equation. That is, that people should at least be able to 
have a roof over their heads and have health care and uh, some form of social security, which the state should provide. That is a deal breaker for so many people today. Yeah, well, it's funny. I get a lot of emails from people who send me that paragraph. Uh, yeah. They know I'm a Hayekian uh, in some dimension. It turns out many, but not all. And they send me that paragraph. They say, well, what about this? And I say, well, maybe it's wrong. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> I, it's not – he's not uh, He's not God. He doesn't – his words are not, you know, perfect. He's not infallible. And it doesn't – so, yeah, maybe he had some inconsistencies relative to my position. I don't really care because I'm a skeptic about the virtues of government-provided health care and, and Social Security. But, I can imagine, yeah. But, but he, certainly, he certainly conceded that. He was very adamant that he was not a conservative. So conservatives who take him to their bosom are probably missing out uh, as well. But he, he obviously in his writing at times had – was willing to, to countenance many, many roles for government – and I think one thing that's nice in your book is that Keynes takes him to task on that. So talk about that. Yeah, Keynes. Um, it, uh, Famous letter of, that Keynes writes. Exactly. There was yeah. a quid pro quo because uh, just as Keynes had sent Hayek his, uh, an early copy of the general theory, so Hayek sent him a copy of The Road to Serfdom, which he read on a transatlantic boat. So it's not a very long, long book, actually. It couldn't take sure. him very long. Uh, and he was, well, what he wrote twice about it, first of all, he sent off, darted off a letter immediately saying, this looks really interesting. I think you're onto something here. I look forward to reading it. And then he read it and he said, this is a really splendid book. And I'm so glad that you pointed these things out because you have spotted something which is really important, that if government keeps growing and growing, then of course there is an enormous danger. If it's, you know, if government is in the wrong hands, the wrong sort of people, as we've just gone through World War II, we know what we're talking about, that uh, you're absolutely right. You know, um, there's a truth here. And but he uh, then many, says, many congratulations. But, but then, but then <laughs> just, as Hayek, just as Hayek is preening himself a little, thinking, yeah. goodness me, Cain said, said something nice to me, he then says, but actually, of course, what we don't need is less planning. What we need is more planning, because the more we plan, the more we can ensure that the economy is healthy, the people are happy, and altogether that will allow them their freedom. And he, he also challenges uh, Ayak, I think, in a, like, philosophically saying, well, if you, if you say it's just a question of, uh, of where you draw the line before you, you risk being on the road to surf, then we just agree it's at a different place, right? Exactly. Yeah, he did, and he, well, he used that example, of course, when Hayek said that there, there are basic things that the state ought to provide. I mean, he does say, of course, which is uh, essential, which is that the protection of the state itself, that is defense, is a, is a key thing that every state must have. But then when he goes on to say these other things, that's when Cadence pounces and says, oh, I see, so you can see that there should be some form of social security, that there should be some form of pension. Oh, I see. So in which case, yeah, well, I think aren't we both on the same side, really? It's just that you're, you know, you're a little further over there and I'm a little further yeah. over here. And there's some truth to that, of course. Neither of them. Yeah. Keynes wasn't a, uh, a socialist, and Hayek was not a, an anarchist. So in that sense, yeah. they're, they're close to each other, but of course, still pretty, pretty, oh, yeah, pretty far vast, apart. A <laughs> gaping chasm between the two of them. But it's, a, but it's another interesting thing, and it was interesting that also by this stage, how, um, how much more generous Keynes is towards Hayek. I mean, well, you know, the passing of time, all sorts of things happened, including World War II, which... Uh, I think was traumatic for anyone who lived through it of whatever age or whatever occupation. Uh, but those two being, well, particularly Keynes, was intimately involved in the management of the war uh, in, uh, from the British government point of view and the borrowing of money from America and also trying to work out what the post-war world would look like and its various institutions. Keynes was integrally involved in yeah, all of this. That's right. And I think that uh, and it probably did reflect, and the generosity of the letter did reflect the fact that Keynes was riding amazingly high, as he had done, you know, now for a couple of decades. Right, he could, could afford to Hayek, be a little bit. A exactly, little bit he could patronize Hayek yeah. a bit. You know, Hayek was oh, he wasn't he that old Austrian guy who came and start, you know, started to cause trouble those years ago, and so he is very generous. Other, but but all of that, of course, comes to an abrupt end because in 1946 Keynes drops dead. Yeah, age 62. Yeah, and. Uh... There's this famous conversation where Hayek reminds Keynes of the dangers of inflation, yeah. and mm. Keynes says, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll temper the excesses of my, my fans, my followers with, with ease because I'll just dissuade them from their positions, and he doesn't have the opportunity because he's gone. Yeah, that's the very – well, I mean I suppose that would be true of almost anyone who had a cult following behind them. You know, oh, I can handle them. Don't yeah. worry about that. So at but this point no – the, the Keynesians then took over from Keynes. 
Yeah, and what's fascinating about this is again is just sort of pure intellectual history, is that at this point Keynes Keynes is certainly at his death at his at his zenith. Although it, there's some real good years left to come for his reputation, Hayek is had a little bit of a comeback because the road to serfdom has been quite a success. Um, but the world moves in the Keynesian direction for the next thirty years. Uh, it governments get bigger, uh, they get more interventionist, and they. Uh, they spend a lot more. Yeah. That comes to an end partly through the championing of Hayek's ideas by Thatcher and Reagan. But you know, I, I, the standard story, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. The standard story as well. And then in the eighties, Hayek was on the rise because Reagan quoted him and Thatcher quoted him. But the fact is, government still got a lot bigger. It's it it didn't get as big as it could have gotten. We didn't head toward the kind of planning at the national government level that many people advocated industrial planning and and uh, and various variations on that but it was not a golden era of of less a fair from 1980 to to say 2000 it was just a slowing in the rate of growth absolutely and the uh, it's interesting hayek's response when of course he was constantly asked about reagan and thatcher and he always went out of his way to say that um, he didn't do any advising for them, that he was no part of their economic team. You know, the first thing he said was to snap immediately, you know, nothing to do with me, those two, which is not what one expected because there's no doubt that both Reagan and Thatcher had read Hayek. Yeah, actually had read him, yeah. Actually, they were fans of him. They were fans of his work. Genuine no fans of him and also wooed him. I mean, they met him. And the, Thatcher certainly ensured that she saw him on a regular basis. Uh, but, but the was, fact is that uh, yeah, Reagan and Thatcher were still spending a hell of a lot, and yeah. and, uh, and actually, they I think they missed out on some of the essential elements of what Hayek was trying to tell them. And I, I interviewed Milton Friedman in two thousand and six. Friedman appears a number of times in your book as mm. uh, clearly somebody who's sympathetic to Hayek's political economy, not so mm. sympathetic to his his monetary theory. Although they have some, they have a little bit of overlap in that they're both skeptical of. Uh, the virtues of easy money, that, that's, that's for sure. So when I interviewed Milton in 2006, uh, shortly before he passed away, I was recounting how many of his ideas in Capitalism and Freedom, a book written in 1962, I think, how many of them had, had come into the mainstream and how half full at least the glass was. And Friedman's reaction akin to Hayek's, I think, was, yeah, look how many of them didn't happen. Look how little progress we've made. <laughs> In stemming yeah. the the size of government and, and government regulation, uh, we're almost out of time. I, I want to ask you one uh, speculative question, and then we'll close uh, with with a general question. The speculative question is: uh, I was fascinated when I when I interviewed Bruce Caldwell. This issue came up, and uh, you mentioned as well that Hayek, for uh, reasons of romance, uh, spends a year at the I think it's a year, but certainly some time teaching at the University of Arkansas. Uh, in order to get an easy divorce and and remarry uh, the love of his childhood, of his young adulthood life. Um, do we know anything about his his life in Arkansas? Do we know anything about – I'd love there, – there's somebody alive today, maybe hundreds of people, who took Hayek's economics classes in Arkansas – any, I must say, I've never come across anyone ever. Have you? <laughs> no, There's no, no but, trace of this at all. No, but I, Hayek, the lost year, or Hayek, the the Arkansas year, would be great. Yeah, and I, I was thinking you'd make a good movie. Um, this, <laughs> Viennese, <laughs> this Viennese uh, intellectual in Fayetteville. I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by it, but it needs. It's your, it could be your next book. Um, the other historical episode I wanted to just quickly ask you about is is Schumpeter, who you don't spend a lot of time on. Schumpeter has a sort of parallel experience to Hayek. He's got this great book on business cycles that he thinks he's going to write, and um, it's it also just sort of falls apart. It never coheres, and he publishes it to no effect, thinking – seeing himself as the great intellectual rival to, to Keynes, but the world doesn't see him that way. No, I suppose if Lionel Robbins had blessed him, uh, it might have been different. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that that – the institutional framework that Robbins provided for Hayek to counter Keynes has meant that, uh, in the end, we look at Hayek, even better than Mies, actually, as, as being the counter to Keynes, even though they don't entirely fit. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the general, I, I guess Mies is the, the granddaddy of all this yeah. uh, stuff anyway. And so actually it should be Mies versus Keynes, but for a number of reasons that didn't work out. 
Well, he had a lot of sparring partners indirectly, right? Friedman certainly becomes one, although Keynes is gone by then. Uh, but Friedman certainly ends up battling Keynes uh, in his own way and, and mm. c- cutting him up a bit, <laughs> I think quite a bit. It was uh, you know, We didn't talk about it, but obviously the having the intellectual uh, work of Friedman to fall onto when the Keynesian story fell apart in the 70s with stagflation uh, played a large role in the ascendancy of Friedman's work and, uh, and its influence. Uh, yeah, but don't forget that Friedman also write, wrote a very generous essay about Keynes. Well, that, that's a nice segue to, our, to the issue we left for, in the middle of our conversation, which is that Keynes invented macroeconomics. I think it's important to, to, to make it clear that the classical economists certainly were very well aware of the business cycle, were very well aware of the fact that there could be unemployment and, and how bad it was and how the human toll it took. But there is a sense in which Keynes, quote, invents macroeconomics. What is that sense? Well, the sense is that he, um, he just started looking at the whole discipline of economics from a different position. It's as if he'd hovered sort of 10 foot above the air and looked down on economics rather than looking at it from ground level. He looked at the big picture of economics. He, looked at, he worked out that an economy was made up of different parts, different moving parts, uh, including money. Uh, and uh, the interrelationship between all of these elements was uh, the key. And that is why he was suggesting that if you were to inject a little more money here, you would get a little less unemployment over there. And so he saw it as if it was a machine, a large construction. And that's the way that we now, that's macroeconomics. That's the way we, uh, the big picture is the way that we understand economics. We, to that extent, all economics today that is used is macroeconomic. Yeah, I like the way you described it because it's a phrase I'm fond of. You talked about Keynes's view of macro being top down and, and Hayek's being bottom up. Mm. Uh, that's a little unfair to Keynes because obviously, and modern Keynesians, obviously, they try very hard to introduce individual behavior into the aggregate story. Well, they've uh, had to do that because of Hayek, actually. I mean, they've had to do that because so many people complained you're only looking at it from above. Yeah, but it's it's an it's a useful way I think to think about it, and. Um, mm. Uh, that and that, of course, led to the other thing, which Keynes disliked and Hayek disliked even more, which was measuring the economy. It stands to reason that once you've worked out that this is, how, this is the equation on which it's all based, it's amazingly complex, well, people will start trying to fill in what the various values mean yeah. and start logging in an economy uh, various figures, various measurements. And in a way, economics, which is all macroeconomic, it's true, but all economics today is sort of modeling its uh, econometricians uh, trying to measure different bits and pieces. If you, I mean, an economist who gets hired today via business is mostly crunching numbers or trying to find a model which will uh, provide some vision into the future so that people invest better. And today is Monday, October 10th, 2011, and the Nobel Prize was awarded this morning to Thomas Sargent and Chris Sims. For that kind of enter- partly for that kind of enterprise, mm. but I find it remarkable how little direct empirical evidence there is for this debate that we're having. And I, the, to, this, to me, is the is the punchline to the story, which is we had this debate. It starts in the 30s. It gets more mathematical as we go through the 70s. The anti-Keynesian story, uh, much of the anti-Keynesian story, becomes an argument within the Keynesian framework, which Milton Friedman. In some sense, was he was an yeah. aggregate. Per, his work was very much in the Absolutely. aggregate sense, but the ability to use econometrics to steer the economy or, or to assess the value of public policy in 1976, Robert Lucas writes a critique of that attempt. Uh, that critique pretty da- pretty devastating, and yet today we continue to have the same debate. There's a bunch of people who say. The stimulus worked great. A bunch of people who say, no, it was a total failure. A bunch of people who say, we need to spend another trillion dollars. A bunch of people say, no, we, either, we have to try something totally different. That was, it didn't work. And the inability to use uh, econometric techniques to settle that debate to me is one of the great lessons of the last 50 years. And most economists don't agree with me, but that's, that's my take. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I do agree with you. Yeah, it, but uh, it's, it, it's not the mainstream view. Because uh, it says it it it, re- it requires a, a level of humility and honesty in the face of of the reality that most economists would prefer, uh, or I'm wrong. It could, it could be it's going to the other. Um, why don't we close? We're out of time. Why don't we close 
with a, on a more personal level, I'd love your impressions of what kind of personal relationship Keynes and Hayek had, the level of friendship. They were so combative early on, uh, and yet there are these episodes in their lives where they're socially interacting. Uh, and um, talk about their, their friendship. Yes, because they did have a friendship, um, uh, and it lasted, I guess, what, sort of 1930 to 1946, eventually, and it, it was a different friendship, a different, different sort of friendship at different times. Uh, I think that right at the beginning, it was um, like two um, stags locking horns, and they actually never uh, managed to wound each other because their horns remained locked. I mean, that, they didn't get any further than locking horns. But as time went on, I mean, all of these worlds, as you know, I mean, rather like economics today, or certainly Austrian economics in America, they're a very small world. And uh, the world between Cambridge and London was very small, and they did encounter each other very often. They even attended uh, joint seminars, which were held halfway between Cambridge and London, where the Keynesians and the Hayekians, or the Austrians, could meet in order to discuss all of these issues. Again, wonderful material which has all just gone to the ether. Uh, I, there, there are very few descriptions of Keynes and Hayek actually appearing before these uh, groups of people. But they, they got on amiably enough and often found themselves on the, the same side of the argument, which is interesting. I think there was a, there was a clear change in uh, 1940 when the London School of Economics was bombed out of London and it, uh, the whole college moved to Cambridge. And there, it's where Keynes extended a, a hand, as you, as you may imagine. Cambridge is very stratified, like everything else in England. And so, however wonderful your college is, there's a pecking order, of, and the top of which is King's, Keynes' own college. By the way, another job he did, he was a bursar of King's, and he inve invested enormous amounts of money for, for King's and made a lot of money for King's, <laughs> just in passing. Yeah. And what Keynes says to Hayek, oh, you don't want to stay over in that college. Why don't I find you some rooms in King's? And... I must say, that is about as generous an offer as you can get yeah. to, you know, never mind the fact that we've fallen out in the past, never mind that, you know, we have our profound disagreements, which we will never come to an agreement on. The fact is, you know, you're a decent sort of guy. On the other hand, he confides to his wife, Lydia, you know, um, sat next to uh, Friedrich Hayek at, uh, in the hall yesterday at the top table in King's, you know, um, still talking as much nonsense as ever about economics. But on other matters, they were very close, and they spoke about, um, they were both collectors of, or both interested anyway, in uh, early economics books. I mean, very early economics books, uh, which, is, uh, which they would share. They would, they would talk about book buying in general. They would talk about their travels and so on. Uh, so in the end, they ended up very amiable. And all, all the way through Hayek, as much as he might have disparaged Keynesian's ideas, he was always very generous, not only to Keynes as a person, as a human being, but also to his intellect. And so when Keynes died, he wrote, um, as, he, as he well might maybe to uh, Keynes's widow, but he wrote a very generous thing, saying that he was probably the brightest, the most intelligent man that I've ever come across in my life. And uh, I tell you, if you're Hayek saying that of Keynes, um, that's a pretty big thing to say. My guest today has been Nicholas Wapshot. Nicholas, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Great pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.